I have workhorses and then I have some weird donkeys out in the field. And the weird donkeys out in the field are some of my most beloved books, but I'm going to push the workhorses. People will find my pastures because they come to stare at the pretty workhorses. And then I get them over to the weird donkeys in the field. Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams, a tired Westie. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your publishing goals. Yes, we are, Millie. Can you... <laughs> Lisa Vino is a USA Today bestselling author. Her books have sold millions of copies and have been translated into five languages. She teaches and coaches other authors, and you can find her in the Millionaire Author Mastermind group on Facebook. I spoke to her about publishing paranormal romance, book marketing, and if her creative writing degree helped her with her writing business. That's interesting. Does yours help you? Not really, but it was the springboard to everything else. Because if I hadn't done it, you know, I wouldn't have grown in my confidence as a writer or in particular with public speaking. Um, I wouldn't be able to get up on stage and in particular read my writing, which was a real source of fear for me or, you know, host a podcast if I hadn't done my degree. I'm sorry if you can hear the dog chasing her tail in the background. She's gone really hyper after being ill for a week. Using up all that pen up energy. No, that makes sense. I'm feeling similar, actually. I can see how that would work. Definitely. Something I had to do for my MA and my BA, because I've got an MA and a BA in creative writing, is that they made us stand up in front of the class and read something. And for my MA, it was only a dissertation presentation, which is still terrifying, obviously. But my BA was actually worse. We had a module called storytelling. And for that, we had to memorize a fairy tale and perform it to the class. You couldn't have any notes. And also you had to remember it is a performance. It's not just talking in a monotone about a story. You got marked on how animated you were. So I was kind of lucky in that I'm naturally just quite an animated speaker, but it was still fucking terrifying. And I couldn't tell you a single word of that story that I did. It was like 14 years ago, but anyway, I couldn't remember any of it other than the title. As soon as I'd performed it, it was gone out of my head. I'm not surprised. That sounds really hard. I definitely wouldn't be able to do that very well. It was hard, but it was also a really interesting class because it was about, like I say, performance and public speaking. And a lot of writers think, oh, I don't need those skills because I can just like write and publish and shit. And actually having public speaking skills is very beneficial and even in like Dickens day he used to go on tour for like weeks months on end and read his work and perform his work so those skills do matter whether you're doing it virtually or in person definitely the more experience I get in those kind of things the better I feel so I can imagine that was quite beneficial and I have to say you do have a natural aptitude for it some people don't well thank like, you but you are very good for saying like how many times have you read in person uh twice yeah that still baffles me <laughs> I have read with a lot of people before and most of the time when it's their second reading, they are not as good as you. Oh, well, thank you. That's good to hear. I still have the video recording of it, actually, and I can tell how much I was bricking it the whole way through. But I just pretended I wasn't. <laughs> and the audience couldn't tell. That's the thing. I obviously knew because I know you, but I know also the physical signs and the way you speak and how nerves can affect that. And your nerves didn't come through in how you read. And that's really important. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it went well. And and it's another skill in itself. That's me. Jack of all <laughs> skills. Jack of all <laughs> trades. 
<laughs> good at skills you know what I mean <laughs> yeah if you want to improve your public speaking or talk writing or just hang out come join us in our free Facebook group if you type in to your browser writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group it will magically redirect you to our lovely little community and then you'll be trapped there forever and ever stuck talking about writing and us making you be successful that's that's it it's it's inevitable I, th- I was about to say don't scare them by trapping them there but then when you said <laughs> about being successful oh, okay maybe it's not so scary well I, th- I like to think we're very encouraging in the Facebook group and we talk about each week we talk about stuff we've done well and I personally find that kind of accountability really helpful and it makes me want to do more so yeah, come to the Facebook group, hang out with us, be successful. That's it, simple. If you find this and or other episodes valuable, you can come support us over on Patreon. You'll get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all of the hard work that goes into making these episodes for you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. So, how's your writing been going this week, Ellie, now that you are dissertation-free and it's just you and Alex Warrington? (laughs) I love Alex Warrington. I have been doing um, bits and bobs of writing and just getting back into the swing of things. Like, the first few days, I only did, like, 100 words or 200 words, but I felt like I'd done something because I did some words, right? So that was nice, and then I'm slowly building up, and it just feels so much more natural than the other projects I've been working on for uni. Like it feels like this this kind of stuff is what I'm meant to write, not the stuff I was sort of pushing myself to do at uni, which was good because I still learned stuff doing those projects. But now I feel free again. <laughs> And I'm just loving writing again. Not that I hated it before, but do you know what I mean? This feels like what I'm meant to be writing. And it feels so much. It feels like fun, not a chore. I might change my mind in a few days, but you know, for now it's fun. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I feel really bad saying this, but working on Hollywood Heartbreak has been fucking hard. And that felt like a chore. And don't get me wrong. I love spending time with Tate and Jack. They are two of my favorite characters, which is how they ended up with the spinoff series. But Hollywood Heartbreak was fucking hard. I sent it to the beta readers on Saturday, I think. And it was just such a tremendous relief because I'll be brutally honest, if I'd been more organized in my writing process, I probably could have sent it in August. And to be fair, my beta readers weren't free then. So it's not such a bad thing, but I don't know how to articulate it. It was just so hard. And I don't know if it's just because of the overlap with the first two What Happens in books or because of the emotional side of things or something else. But there were some scenes that it was like pulling our tooth. I know that's a massive cliche, but I can't think of a better comparison. Or maybe trying to walk a Westie. That's a good comparison. It was just so hard. And I have never found a book that has challenged me as much as this. Like. Afterlife Calls, yes, that challenges me because I'm new to writing fantasy, but that is in a fun way that I want to do more of. And with this, it just felt like it was stressful. It really was. And thinking about it a bit more, I don't think it was the emotional scenes that were the problem because they were some of the first scenes I wrote. I think the actual problem was the overlaps with the what happens in series and then filling in some of the gaps between those emotional scenes and the um, what happens in books. But I'm way more organized for book six. I have learned from this mistake. So I have already plotted out what I'm going to do. And as much as it pains me, I think I'm going to actually have to suck it up and reread some of my own books to make sure I get certain small details right. Like the fact 
Tate and Jack change their hair all the time and then what happens in books and I should not have done that to myself when I knew I was writing a spin-off you are a sucker for punishment aren't you I am but it's not like subtle changes it's like Tate goes from like blonde to pink to purple kind of hair colours so these kind of things do actually need to be addressed especially in a series that does centre around celebrity and fashion and all those things yeah that awkward important details and i can't believe you've done this to yourself and i can't believe i didn't take note of when i changed these awkward important details that's what's so fucking frustrating because i did make note of these things for the what happens in characters so that i was consistent in the book but not for the ones who get their own spin-off round of applause for me please or maybe a slow clap feels more fitting (laughs) (laughs) but in good news i feel much better than i have for the last two months like I was suffering from serious overwhelm and it wasn't good. It wasn't healthy. I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel productive. And the last week or so, I've slowly started to improve. I still feel fragile, but I don't feel like there are quite as many diseased hamsters running through my brain. And I'm hoping that I can maintain that and just generally feel more productive and more focused and get more shit done because honestly the amount of things i've done today is insane i know you've been absolutely kicking ass today thank you i have ticked off nearly everything on my to-do list before we started recording this and we're recording this at half five and i got up what time did we do the writing sprint quarter past eight well it was supposed to be eight sorry i'm sorry Someone i turned overslept. my alarm off <laughs> we started about 25 past <laughs> I turned my alarm off and fell back to sleep it's and then I'm my brain went that. oh shit <laughs> we've all done it to I be haven't fair, been in the habit of it. turning my alarm off that many times since I had a day job as far <laughs> as I know or unless snooze, I have snooze, to get snooze. up to do chores yeah yeah right. I am that person who hits snooze about 12 times and it used to really piss my boyfriend off but look yeah, at the snooze. time he gets up before me I snooze for like an hour I'm terrible yeah it's awful no I do feel a lot better and I think our morning writing sprints are one of the things that definitely help they do I feel so much more accomplished even like i said if it is only 200 words 200 words i wouldn't have written otherwise before breakfast you know exactly it's progress i always try and hit my thousand words because that's the goal i've always set myself when i'm drafting and i started after life calls four aka the witch's sacrifice this morning and woo! you say <laughs> woo i was broken after writing that i had to go downstairs and have millie hooks because it's a really sad scene between Edie and their dog Tilly. And I won't say any more than that, but like, yeah, it was like, I really need Westie hugs after that. Because obviously Tilly is a Westie as well, based on Millie, because I'm really lazy coming up with names for pets and characters in general. I mean, me too. I'm terrible at names. I think half the characters in Alex Warrington, I've gone in a group chat and gone, give me a man's name. No, something younger. No, yeah, that kind of works. I'll use that. And that's all I did. <laughs> I mean, to oh. that, I did the same. You named Ben and After Love Calls. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, I need a name for this character. And I was trying to think of really fancy names. And you just went, what about Ben? I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect. Why was I ever complicating this entire just thing? Call just call him. Just call him. I was on a writer's Twitch stream once. And she was talking about writing. And we were doing like writing sprints together and then talking between. There's a few people there. It wasn't just me and her. Um, and then we were talking about it. And I put it there. I was like, I didn't name for a character. <laughs> So I'll just ask anyone. I'm just a terrible, terrible person. That doesn't make you terrible. You're asking for help when you need it. And I think that's an important skill that people often forget. You know, when I was struggling a couple of weeks ago, I didn't want to ask for help. And when I did, holy shit, the response was incredible. 
Yeah, help is out there. It's many different forms. And obviously asking for help with names is, is a very small part of that. But yeah, just we're, we're big believers in asking for help here, aren't we? We definitely are. Maybe we should start doing writing sprints for patrons once a week or however often people would yeah, find it useful. I like that. I like that. Because I know we've done them before, like just in the Facebook group to help people when you were doing your dissertation. Maybe it's something we can do on a more regular basis since we do them daily anyway. Yeah. If you are interested in us doing something like that, let us know in the comments on YouTube or on our Facebook group, or you can actually email us podcast at writerscookbook.com. We do check the email. We just don't promote it very often. Right. Let's go check out our chat with Lee and we will see you on the other side. With me today is Lisa Vino. Welcome to the Writer's Mindset. Thank you so much for having me on. So tell our listeners a little bit about you. Okay. So I'm an author and I really got started in 2015 and it was a lifelong dream for me to write books and I wasn't sure how to go about publishing them. I actually went to college because my parents said I had to go to college and I studied English with a concentration in creative writing. But of course, none of my professors were like, oh yeah, if you want to write werewolf romance, you should just self-publish. Like they didn't know about any of that. So I left and I knew I wanted to write werewolf romance. Like I was very clear to my professors, like my senior thesis was like a werewolf novel. And they're like, okay, you can graduate. So they uh, weren't that much help. And also that sort of traditional mindset was there. And I, and I probably would have been better off just writing books and figuring out how to publish them online but my parents said I had to get a degree and I don't really regret it. I just don't recommend anyone go that route. Like you do not need a degree. Um, but I took my little werewolf novel and I submitted it to agents. And at that time, of course, publishing was changing. It was like 2008. And if I just hung on a little bit longer, I would have found self-publishing, but I actually gave up on my dream for a few years and got like a real job. Again, my parents said I should get a real job. So I got a real job and that's actually my biggest regret in my publishing journey. I just could have believed in myself a little bit more and really been open to all the possibilities because in 2015, I found self-publishing and I actually love the marketing and publishing side as much as the writing side. And I love being able to do both. So that's kind of how I got my start. And I didn't make any money in the beginning and my husband supported me. And then he was like, can you, can you help out with the bills? And I was like, all right, I can figure this out. Werewolf romance is popular. I should be able to figure this out. And I figured some things out and now I'm doing really well. And my husband actually quit his boring day job to come and help me. And so, yeah, the writing is going well. The books are doing well and I'm having a blast. I love what you said then about having a creative writing degree, because my experience <laughs> is exactly the same, because I have BA and an MA in creative writing, and my co-host is finishing her MA, and we've all kind of agreed that once you've learned how to write through any sort of creative writing course, you have to start again when you start publishing, because yes. it's not the same thing. You're writing it's for different audiences, you go from academics to readers, and they are vastly different. Yes, and I would say that is actually the huge flaw not that it's inherently bad to have a teacher and to learn more about writing and to study it. I think we can do that without, you know, paying a prestigious university money, but you end up writing for your professors and who's to say that they're the end all be all of what is good 
fiction and what is good prose. And you can learn how to tell a story without that. Now I did have some fun. They, you know, they helped me in a lot of ways, but yeah, I, I knew going in, I wanted to write genre fiction. I really was like, I read a lot of genre fiction. I tried literary fiction when I was in my teens. I was like, I'm going to read some great American novels or some great novels. And I picked up Anna Karenina and (laughs) she dies in the end. And I was done. I was like, I don't want to read these books where the heroine dies. I want to read the the books where the heroine like learns to sword fight and like ride a dragon and save the world. You know, I, so, and then I was like, let me try another book. So I picked up Madame Bovary and then Tessa the Dobervilles. (laughs) And then I'm like, well, maybe I need a woman writer like Virginia Woolf. Like, no, none of these books are really that inspiring for me as a woman. I, I want to kick butt and take names and read about. So I switched to fantasy and sci-fi and that those are the books of my childhood and my teenagehood where I dreamed bigger and enjoyed, you know, Anne McCaffrey and Ursula Le Guin. And those, those are the sort of books I wanted to write. And I stumbled into romance um, because at my boring day job, I was reading tons of erotica. <laughs> <laughs> And I kind of keep yourself entertained. Yeah, I would shut my office door and read lit erotica, (laughs) like, and I'd find the good stories. And of course, I naturally gravitated to the good prose. Yes, it was all titillating, but it was like I wanted the good prose. And what I read a lot of, I end up writing. So I end up starting to write my own. Everything that I was writing got really erotic. (laughs) And guess what? That sells really well. So, (laughs) (laughs) have you ever found like? In your more erotic books that you do struggle to advertise it with places like Facebook or Amazon, because I know they sometimes don't like things that get too steamy. Yeah. So that is one of the things I've actually struggled with is how to tame down what I'm writing or position it so that I can advertise it. But I actually stalled out a little bit in my writing. I was struggling and it could have been just 2020 and I had two little kids at home suddenly and uh, everything, but I really like writing the more erotic stuff, but they've, it's always been with a plot. So it's not pure erotica. It it does have a plot and it has a romance feels. So I can position it as romance, but yeah, that's something I've tried getting around. And there's certainly books of mine that are easier to advertise than others. And they're more like mainstream. But what I've discovered is that they can be positioned as mainstream, but still have really intense, um, sex scenes because 50 shades of gray kind of told a lot of readers, you can read anything on your Kindle and nobody in your e-reader, nobody knows what you're reading. You could be reading Tess of the Dubervilles. <laughs> nobody knows. And it's actually 50 shades of gray. And guess what? The heroine's going to have a much happier ending. <laughs> so, um, nothing wrong with that. So I think that romance has moved to steamier. So mainstream, I can still write mainstream romance and put in all sorts of kinky stuff because romance has moved to steamier. And now, I mean, on TikTok, everybody's reading some awesome sci-fi, like alien romance, and that's becoming mainstream. And I'm like, yes, I'm here for it. (laughs) When you're working on your books, then how do you decide what kind of heat level they need? So the characters decide that. I mean, really, if anything, I'm the one kind of pulling back. But when I write, I actually 
would time my sprints early on my writing sprints. And I think that actually helped me a lot because it gave me insight into when my word count per hour doubled and it was two scenes, fight scenes and sex scenes. And I was like, well, it's like description and witty banter and lots of body parts moving. (laughs) And apparently I write that better, but really what it is, is I'm in a state of flow and I see that I'm seeing the scene pretty clearly. I'm hearing the dialogue and that's my favorite place to write. I think it's everyone's favorite place to write. So I decided early on from those sprints, well, you need to have opportunities for lots of fight scenes and lots of sex scenes and anything you write. And that was easy because I was going to gravitate to write it anyway, but it was nice to have data to support it, I guess. So I started writing menage a trois, which is very difficult to advertise. And I don't, I don't really recommend it. And I think it kind of had a peak um, where it had its own natural audience a couple of years ago, but I also like writing it. So I'm going to keep writing it. I'm writing one right now. And I found that when you write what you love and you can write a lot of those books in a long series and you're playing to your strengths, and this is, this is actually a marketing technique. You're writing something that only really you can write. You can stick along with the series and make it long enough that you find an audience. And the big tool to find the audience is then a perma freebie, right? So you're, you're getting a taste of your writing into a lot of people's hands. And I've made series successful. Now they're not my most successful series, but there's the series that I really wanted to write. It was Menage a Trois with Viking werewolves. And I have 16 of these books and they're actually 35,000 words long on average. So they're very short, like novella length, which fits erotica, but there's a lot of world building, a lot of plot. They have fantasy elements. There's magic, there's witches, and Vikings, <laughs> the werewolves are berserker Vikings, which is kind of cool. And I, and I have so many of them that I was able to build an audience that just loves those books. And of course, after the perma-free, then I send them to another tiny freebie, 10,000 words long, that's on my website and they can only get it by joining my newsletter list. So now I have a newsletter of 30,000 people that over the years have joined just because of the series. That's a very warmed up audience for one series. So um, yes, I play with the marketing elements. Sometimes I'm, I'm actually now trying to figure out how I can make it really clear that this is a werewolf series and reach more paranormal readers. In the beginning, I brought my erotica readers in, they wanted the erotic elements and I was able to market it with really this garish, like Fiverr cover. And I was like, Oh, I hate this cover. And it, it sold right away. People, people saw it and were like, that's going to be sexy, you know? (laughs) And, and I was able to like give away the first book free. And, and anyway, I have made this series successful. So I've started to really consider my writing career and think long and hard less about what can I write that I can advertise on Facebook and more, what can I write that I will love that I will get into a state of flow that I will enjoy. So I can write a lot of it because then it'll give me an opportunity to find an audience first in English. And now I've, as I've discovered, I've translated the books into German, French, Italian, and I found audiences in those languages. So, um, and then the sales come from the sell-through of the series and it's not my most successful series. I definitely have werewolf series that are more mainstream. that are not menage a trois. They're not Vikings. They're more of your, you know, faded mate in a contemporary setting. 
Um, and that's actually where I spend most of my advertising dollars, which is the other thing. If you have a book that sells naturally and it's more, it has more mainstream appeal and you can just, you can advertise it on Facebook and Amazon allows you to advertise it because Amazon doesn't allow me to advertise most of my books. Go ahead and push those books. Those are your workhorses to use Elena Johnson's metaphor. She's, she was like, I have workhorses and then I have some weird donkeys out in the field. And the weird donkeys out in the field are some of my most beloved books, but I'm going to push the workhorses. People will find my pastures because they come to stare at the pretty workhorses. And then I get them over to the weird donkeys in the field. So that's another way of thinking about it. <laughs> that analogy. I love it. That was Alana Johnson. She does not write steamy either, but that was her metaphor. And she writes sweet and clean. <laughs> so very different <laughs> books, but same marketing strategy. I found people usually come to me from one particular book slash series. And then if they love that, they will go and read the rest of the books in the universe because they need more of that universe and those characters within it. Right. Exactly. And that's how I read. I'm on a Michael Connolly kick right now. Why? I watched the show. I have read some of his books in the past and realized, oh my God, he has like 20 more in this series. And guess what? I kind of one clicked and bought them all like $9.99 traditionally published books. They're amazing. And I'm going to read, and then I'm going to go read his random short stories. And I'm going to read his other series with other characters, just because the one character I love, the 20 book series pops up a couple times in those other books. And I'm going to end up buying everything this man has ever written. And that's kind of how I see my readers can come into my catalog. Definitely. Yeah. What would you say then has been your most successful book marketing tactic? So focus on the book that sells the most and just push that. A lot of the ad courses I've taken, I think the teachers just really learned that. They push and advertise their winners. And to to get the winners, um, I would say write what you love and keep figuring out what you love to write and trying to pair that, like your voice on all whether you can write funny or suspense, mystery, um, bring that out. So even in a romance novel, you can bring out elements of suspense. You could bring out elements of fantasy or magic or world building or, or humor and infuse the books with that. And so then you're matching, I think, tropes of the genre with your voice. And that's kind of my way of thinking of marketing is you want to think about tropes you love to write already because we all have tropes that we gravitate to naturally. And Dr. Jennifer Barnes talks about your id list and that's a good way of thinking of it. You can look up her work, but there are things that we naturally are like, Ooh, shiny, like rich people or in wealth that, that attracts us. People who are very good looking that attracts us. And you have those books, those elements in your book, but you add your voice in. So then you have jokes in there that only you can put in. And that will make your writing memorable to your audience. Because what you really want is not just tons of people to read the books, but then a loyal audience who will come back and follow you. And you don't need millions of people. You could find 10,000 people and you can have a career. And so that's how I think of marketing. And then for, for putting something front and center on the cover, in the blurb, in the ad, yeah, I do think of the trope. But Typically, what I'm writing has a couple different ways, a couple different angles that I could bring out. So the the Viking werewolves, I could market it as historical Viking, but I didn't feel like that would actually satisfy the Viking, the people who are looking for straight 
Vikings, not Viking werewolves. So then I marketed it as werewolves. And I just got my books put up on the app Kiss. And they've started to advertise my books. And they just emailed me and they said, we'd like to change the cover and maybe even the title of this one book that they want to advertise because we really want to put front and center that this is a werewolf novel and just be so on the nose with it. And I'm thinking to myself, that's brilliant. You know your audience, do whatever you want with it. And if it goes well, I might rebrand, maybe not the whole series, all 16 books, but the box sets to be like, werewolves in here, faded mates in here. And yeah, you're going to get some Viking stuff too, but I don't even have to talk about that. I'm just werewolves, like really clear and make that message really clear because readers are clicking around and they're deciding within a few seconds of what to click on. So I'm still learning. I'm still thinking about all this. Based on that then, do you think including tropes in writing genre fiction matters when it comes to actually finding your audience and getting those sales? I think that genre fiction is a, is tropes. It's it, it's woven into the fabric. And that's why I like saying tropes plus voice because the fun part for us as readers is adding the voice. So Michael Connolly is writing police procedurals, but in a different way. His main character, Bosch, is always like not only trying to solve the murder and fight off the bad guys, but he's also like fighting the police department and there's internal conflict there. And Michael Connolly is able to like, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of world building and it's obviously he's very successful at it. His books are amazing. And I obviously want to talk to somebody and I, all my friends read tons of romance and they're not really into the murder mysteries. And I'm like, Oh, I want to talk about how great these books are, but yeah, police procedurals have a hardened detective who's battling his own demons. And there's typically a dead blonde. You know, that's them the breaks, you know, and as as a young, you know, well, a middle, well, a young mother, I guess, um, with long hair. And I'm like, man, I look like a lot of the victims here. When are, when, um, but then in his new series, he has a detective who is my age and has long hair. And I'm like, well, you know, I can relate to her. So he he twisted it a little bit. There's a young, bitter <laughs> detective who is trying to fight her demons. And anyway, the tropes are still there. The police procedural is still there. But he's adding a, a lot of his own um, immense art to, to the tropes. But the tropes are genre. Like, I don't think you can separate them. Yeah, the way you describe those books reminds me a lot of Stuart McBride, which my friend recently got me into. She writes paranormal romance as well, but she mostly reads police procedurals, same as you. And um, I read his first book and I've now started using it as an example for my writing courses because the description is so good, but you never feel like it's slowing down the pace of the book, which obviously is a risk when you've got a lot of quite in-depth description, but it's so beautiful and the voice in it is so strong as well. Voice. And you know what's yeah. cool about voice is I'm following Christine Catherine Rush, who is longtime writer and publisher, who has such a great perspective because she and her husband have been indie for longer than indie existed. And they know kind of the ins and outs of like the old publishing world as well as the new. And she says you know, the best thing your writing teacher can do is actually not add stuff, but help you strip away all the extra, all the crap that you learned in your English classes, 
all the crap you maybe picked up when you read a, po- a popular novelist and you were like, oh, I should write like him. But drilling down to your own voice. And then she said, that's difficult because your voice doesn't sound good to you. It just, it sounds bland. It sounds ordinary because it's you. And I thought that was so cool. And I'm actually trying to get back to that because I have taken tons of craft courses. I'm reading craft books all the time and I want to get better, but unfortunately that probably can clutter up my story too much. So I probably have too much purple prose in my books. Um, I know I do. Well, <laughs> when you're aware of stuff, it's easier to fix things, I find, because then you kind of know what areas to look at and hopefully where to get advice from. Yeah. And it would be tell the story, keep it simple, just tell the story. Uh, I am reading a really cool book, The Emotional Craft of Fiction um, by Donald Moss. And he's, he asked in the, in, I'm like 20 pages in, and I've like found the one thing that I want to apply for the next year and like probably won't read the rest of the book for a little while. And he said, ask the character, what are you feeling? And then what else are you feeling? And then what else are you feeling? And get like three layers deep. And that actually really helped me because then I'm thinking about the character. Well, then I'm suddenly in the movie, right? The movie that's playing in her head and I'm in her and I'm, it actually made me empathize with her a lot better. I was having trouble connecting with her because I didn't like her. (laughs) And I'm like, this is book 16. You have to write this book and you don't really want to write it because you don't like her. So you need to like her. And this is helping me connect with her motivation. That's really good. One thing I've noticed that bugs me sometimes is the fact, not just in writing, but in general, people don't realize how layered emotions are and how complicated they are. Like you can feel the most incredible joy, but the most incredible pain at the same time, because we are three-dimensional and as much as we want it to be, nothing in life is black and white. And sometimes people use fiction as a way to process those emotions. So then it becomes black and white, but then the characters and the story suffer because they're too flat. It's too flat. Yeah. And I think, especially, I think millennials want more nuance because we realize it's not good, bad. It's so many layers. And we love the anti-heroes who get redeemed, but who also act in character and all twisted stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So Speaking of tropes, then, what have you found to be your most successful for your books? Oh, okay. This is really, okay. This is sad for two reasons. One is I feel like I should be better than this and write better than this. And that's, that actually makes me sad that I feel that way versus having fun with the story. Billionaire werewolves, man. (laughs) Not gonna lie. Do you like the sound of that? (laughs) Just, I mean, it's like, oh my God, but how ridiculous, but that's why it's good. And I can write funny. I can write humor. And man, if there's going to be billionaire werewolves, it's going to be, it's going to be hilarious. It's you're embracing the ridiculous. I feel like I'm, I'm embracing and my, my co-writer is brilliant at this. She's just like, yeah, that's going to be hot. And she really means it. She really feels it. And she's like, this is awesome. Whereas I'm like, this is absurd. And I'm going to embrace it because I like absurdity. And I think that she and her books are more popular than mine. And she's amazing. She works 10 times harder than any other writer I know also. So there's that in marketing and, and authoring, like both. But she was like, billionaire werewolf, man. And um, we published that book and we've written maybe, yeah, 13, 14 more in the series. And I kind of had every trope 
in there because I really wanted to write a motorcycle club that were at, was actually werewolves. I thought that fit. I was like, that's cool. And then a fight club of shifters, which is actually, I've seen like T.S. Joyce does that. So that's not anything new, but it came out of the motorcycle club. So that was fun. And now we have special forces shifters. So yeah, embracing the ridiculous a little bit. And that's a mashup of two majorly popular <laughs> tropey, trope-tastic tropes. But we had a lot of fun with it. And so readers have a lot of fun with it. And it is a little ridiculous. He's in a suit and he's like ripping out of it to become a werewolf. It's kind of awesome though. And also ridiculous. And then we added a ton of kink to that book and it sells so well in every language except Japanese. I haven't figured out how to sell anything in Japanese though. So um, we'll figure that. I think we need different, we need like light novel covers. That's a whole other topic of conversation. But yeah, Billionaire Railroad. So that, you know, when I talked to, I hired Nick Eriks, who's amazing at marketing. One of the best marketers I've ever met. He's really honest, really keeps it real. And also tests and tests. It's just da- really data-driven marketing. So I hired him. I was like, I'll pay you anything. Help me with these launches. And um, he's really great. And at the end of the launch, he said, you know, if I were you, I would advertise one book and it's that billionaire romance. And he says, the more I study those books, the more I'm realizing they are exactly what they say they are. The titles, we got some flack from the titles. And it was like a reader emailed us and was like, I'm going to stop reading your books because your titles are so boring. Like she didn't like them. And we were like, oh, and then later, and then she emailed back. I was like, I, but I guess you're doing it because of their keywords. Right. And my co-writer was gracious. And she responded and said, yep, they're keywords. And then the reader wrote back and said, well, I'm actually an author. <laughs> and that was what it was. And then she, and then she said, I actually will write, read your books because they are well-written, but the titles are all, they all have the word alpha in them. They're very basic. The first one is alpha's temptation. And they'll go on from there with the word alpha in them and all of them. And Amazon won't let us advertise them, but it doesn't matter because these books just sell so well. And the series is called Alpha Bad Boys, which are the two huge keywords just crammed together. And this author didn't like it because she didn't think it was artistic enough. And and they're not. I mean, it it really isn't. But Nick said, you are telling the reader exactly what they're going to get in this book. And then they get it. And you really have to be so on the nose for someone scrolling through Amazon who's like, I just want something good to read. What is good to read? I'll try you. Now, the reason the books are sell well and have continued to sell is not because of the title and the cover, which are completely on point, but also the substance of the book is really excellent. And then we wrote like 13 of them. It's interesting what you're saying about another writer telling you that your kind of your titles aren't artistic enough because it reminds me of what we were talking about before. I think before we started recording about creative writing degrees and how it is all about being artistic and literary. And then you come and become a published author and it's like actually if you want to sell it's not about being artistic and literary it's about giving people what they want and what the marker wants the teacher lecturer whatever you want to call them is going to be a gazillion light years away from what most readers want well the marketing definitely has to be front and center on on the nose but i do think that when i say tropes plus, plus voice i think if you have all the tropes your book can look very ghostwritten and you know i get that ghostwriters that's not inherently bad whatever but it is hard to have voice when you're writing a book for someone else as a ghostwriter, I would I would imagine. So if you're adding a lot of voice and you have elements in there that only you can really, you know, my, your quirky sense of humor, for example, is what I put in. My And my co-writer said it this way. So in Bad Boy Alphas, in this series, there's a book where the heroine, the hero is all werewolfy and he's like, you're not, 
you're not afraid of me, are you? And she's like, I'm not afraid of anything but toilet snakes. And then goes and rant about toilet snakes. And my co-writer out of the blue years later said to me, yeah, bad boy alpha sells. And it's, it, it, it's really marketable, but what readers remember are the toilet snakes. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, see that. What? And then, and then I remembered in book four, that quirky little heroine that I loved writing because I loved her sense of humor. And I'm like, well, great. I'm going to be known for toilet snakes. I'm, I'm I guess that, that, that's the way my career is going to go. I'm going to go back and tell my professors, <laughs> but it's fun. And that is something that's, I mean, someone's, someone comes to you and says, write a best-selling novel now. And you're like, okay, I'm going to have bad boy alphas and he's a werewolf and he's a billionaire and he runs a motorcycle club and he's going to rip off his suit and turn into werewolf. And there's going to be hot sex and he has abs. He has so many abs, but no one's going to add in the toilet snakes. And that's where the voice comes in and readers remember the toilet snakes. Please do not put that that in an advertisement. (laughs) Lisa Vino author with sage advice on marketing and authorship. (laughs) Just don't put the word toilet snakes anywhere near my name, please. Would you like me to cut that out? <laughs> no, you can keep that in because I think it's important. I think people are going to remember the word toilet snakes from this podcast. Not going to lie, after this conversation, probably going to message my co-host and say you need to listen to this immediately, not just because she writes the genre you want to write, but because of toilet snakes. And then she's going <laughs> to laugh at me. Yeah, so I guess I'm going to be inextricably linked to toilet snakes. And I'm okay with that because... <laughs> Toilet snakes are scary. <laughs> That's true. They are. They are. And I didn't realize how much of a thing they were because in the in England, we are quite sheltered from scary shit. And I have a friend in Australia who has told me some horror stories and we've had some very twisted conversations about snakes and spiders, but we will cut that there. So toilet snakes aside, what's your favorite paranormal romance or romance trope to actually write about? So Faded Mates is really fun because... You can play with that. I think that recently we saw rejected mates come through where they put the put the conflict right in the title. They were like, it's a faded mate trope, but she's rejecting him or he's rejecting her. That's huge amounts of conflict. And that's right front and center in your cover title blurb. Readers clicked like crazy. That book hit number one. The first one I saw, it hit number one on Amazon. And I was like, what is this book? I need to read it. And it was... The faded mates tropes, and then she she messed with it. But there's so many tropes that make me click on books and want to read them, and I haven't written them enough in my own books. I've almost like avoided the tropes, and I want to embrace the tropes and the ridiculousness. Um, and so, I recently wrote two books. It was during the pandemic, and I didn't want to write anything dark. And I wrote fake relationships. One's a fake boyfriend, and one's a fake fiance. And had a blast with it. And of course, those books are so much more easy to advertise. Because <laughs> you're just like, she needed a fake date for the wedding. And now they're in the same hotel room. Of course they are. And, you know, what's going to happen? And you know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we keep watching anyway, right? That's the thing with yeah. a lot of these romance tropes is people. I have had some people look down on romance because you know how it's going to end, but it's not about the fact that they end up with a happy ever after or happy for now. It's how they get there. Yeah. I think romance is the best genre because I write it. So (laughs) no, because whenever I read anything else, I actually look for the romance. That's that's really why I don't write like thrillers or mystery or or urban fantasy really probably would would be what I write. I write romance because whenever I read anything 
mystery, thriller, urban fantasy. I am looking for the romantic subplot. And I think if you write any of those genres, you could add 20 to 30% more readers if you have a romantic subplot. So that's pretty powerful. That's pretty cool. And I think that obviously we want to figure out emotions and relationships, even if we don't, even if we couldn't consciously say, oh, I want to figure this out. No, our brain is always trying to figure it out because it's such a big part of our lives. So playing with it and then knowing the destination, but making it trippy as hell to get there, that takes real skill. And I think that when people are down in romance, that's actually a lot of internalized misogyny. So unpack that professor. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, we'll just leave that there. We don't have to sit around and talk about feminism for the next (laughs) hour and a half. Romance is awesome. And even if you don't write it, you should probably read it and figure out how to put elements into whatever you're writing. Yeah, I think romance is one of those genres that if you find the right romance book, there's a lot that can be learned from it, even if you don't write romance, because romance and women's fiction is so much about emotion. And that's why the readers are so hardcore, because they're invested in those characters and they're living it with the characters. And so if you can analyze the way that the writers are bringing those emotions out, there's a lot that you can learn, regardless of what genre you're actually writing in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Plus, I want the smooching. Just give me some smooches, man. I, thrillers, they don't deal out the, the kisses very easily. So you got to work for it. You got to go like five books in and he finally finds a woman who's also a spy and will kiss her. And I'm like, yes, I waited three books, six books for this. <laughs> I totally like that as well. I, I struggle to read books that don't have romance in. Um, they're very dry i'm like really he's gonna solve another like bombing and plot you know and thwart the terrorist like what what's he is he ever gonna get a girl like can he figure out an actual human relationship nope he's a robot he's just gonna defuse bombs well after a few books of that i'm done (laughs) yeah it can get quite tedious can't it because then the character is the same every time and i know some books and some genres and series and whatever the characters don't grow but I think you need something to keep it fresh so that it doesn't get repetitive for the reader. And introducing new side characters and new love interests is one way that you can do that. Yeah, totally agree. But I th- I do see that, you know, Lee Child has a huge readership and they want books that with a man who's flat as cardboard. And you know what? More power to you. Do it. Keep going. But also he's traditionally published and started a long time before we did. And what indie readers want is different to what trad readers want, I've found. Yeah. The indie readers are looking for that emotional depth because that's what keeps them turning the page, not the plot. Well, the plot does for the book. I mean, the characters are what keeps them reading the series. Yeah, the emotional arcs, man. Um, I've learned that I'll have a few elements of the plot played out, but really it's about you know, in, in romance, they're like moving together, moving apart, moving together a little bit more, moving apart and moving, and then they're together. Right. And that is done emotionally. It's not done with, you know, I have to take this job in Mexico and leave. Yeah. But if they're emotionally not 
it, it's more about them emotionally being apart than it is about them being like continents apart. Yeah. And that can be really powerful and also relatable because we've all had those kind of relationships, even if they're not romantic relationships. You know, I read something like 60% of people have fantasized about a workplace romance. And I was thinking that was another trope. I was like, I haven't written more like boss employee or just employee of like coworker romance, because that's something we're all puzzling out. I mean, we're bored at our jobs. We're shutting our office door to freaking read literatica. So of course, you know, if there was a hot guy there, it would be like, you know, imagining us in the photo photocopier, like, hello, <laughs> photocopier room, brother. <laughs> I'm fairly sure the majority of people meet their partner either at work or um, at the gym. That might have changed now and it's probably more online. But it is quite common, I think, to meet people that way. Yeah. And that's why I think that every romance author has an elevator scene. Like every contemporary romance author. Jane Austen doesn't have an elevator scene, but she would have had one if elevators had been popular (laughs) in the 18... When did she write? 18... I don't know when she wrote. Uh, I can't remember. And I looked it up the other day. (laughs) We're going to look it up later. But she did not write an elevator scene. But everyone, every other romance um, author writes an elevator scene because you know close proximity mm-hmm. that's very true they're inevitable kind of like yeah. your couple yeah and then you just you give that to the reader but you do it in different ways and that's the fun that's the that's the voice plus trope that makes it really fun what would be your tips then for a writer who is just starting out and trying to find their voice so think about what you love to read and then Think about what you love to write, what you're naturally sitting down to write, and just don't stop yourself. Please, God, do not think, oh, I have to write werewolf romance because it's popular. You know, I once took a job because I thought I could make a lot of money in finance. But what ended up stopping me from making a lot of money in that job was the fact that I really wanted to be a writer. And I knew that if I started to make a lot of money in finance, then I would not allow myself to pursue my dream. And the answer was to just quit and completely shift gears. And I was able to do that. I had a lot of support and privilege to be able to do that. I'm really grateful for that. But I imagine it would be the same if I told myself, you have to write Westerns. (laughs) That's the only way for you to be successful. And I actually wrote some erotic Westerns for a publisher and then decided I didn't want to write anymore. I was like, nope, no more cowboys ever. But to be locked into that, the worst thing that would have could have happened to me was it became so successful that I felt like I couldn't write what I really wanted to write, which ended up being werewolves, which are immensely more popular than cowboys. So it worked out for me. But I really feel like there's somebody listening to this who's like, man, I just want to write stuff that's so funny or I want to write stuff that's like Lee Child and Jack Reacher, like a really straight man who is a bomb-diffusing robot. And that's what you want to write. You could write like 50 books of that. And you really want to set them, you know, in the continent of Africa or something. You want to do something totally different. And maybe, you know, you're exploring your own ethnicity or sexuality and you want to write a character who looks just like you. And you're like, well, that won't sell. And actually, those elements are going to be what makes your books yours. I really want to get to the point where I write a book and no one else can write a book like me. And yeah, I write erotic romance, 
of all sorts, sometimes werewolves, sometimes billionaires, sometimes werewolf billionaires, but no one can write a Lisa Vino book. And I realized that was I was pushing my daughter on the swing during the pandemic. And I was thinking a lot about writing and not actually able to do a lot of writing, which can be dangerous because you can go down some negative self-talk paths. But I really decided for the next leg of my career, I want to write books that only I can write and only Lisa Savino can write. And that means I want to put the toilet snakes in the, in the book, then you just do it. Just do it. Like <laughs> worst case, the books never sells. And you're like, okay, the toilet snakes were the problem. You know, I won't put that into the next book. There's only so much you can do with toilet snakes anyway. So um, put in the quirky humor, put in the, the mystery elements, put in the horror, if that's really what you're into and write the character who looks exactly like you with exactly your ethnicity and sexuality and belief system. And guess what? The internet's going to allow you to find the 10,000 people on the planet out of billions who love this character and love this book. And your first couple efforts might be a little rough, but if it has your voice in there, some of my favorite books are those first books that are rough. Like my favorite Jane Austen book is Northanger Abbey and nobody's heard of it because it's a bad book. But man, I love it because she was, tr- she was going for it. You know, she was trying and she wrote something and she kind of got it out of her system. And then she wrote freaking Pride and Prejudice. One thing that my readers have always said to me is that they relate to my characters and how they are both ambitious, but they are still anxious. They are still depressed. They are still held back by the people around them or whatever is going on with them at the time. And they have these big dreams that they are trying to achieve, but there is always something that gets in their way. And that's what happens in real life. But how often do you see ambitious female characters who will stand on other people to achieve their dreams? You don't see it because people are afraid of that dark side of femininity. Man, I want to read your books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I will say this. In the Hollywood Gossip series, um, Tate loses her best friend because she puts her career first. But that happens. It does. And no one talks about it. Yeah. Man, I love this. Thank you. I should also point out Tate's decision then completely backfires on her as well. Well, yeah, I would. <laughs> and then she learns. No, <laughs> no, no, she you doesn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Eventually, but it's a six book series, so. Okay. But that's fun. I mean, and that's, that's good. And that's the beating heart of something. And that's why I love those early books is because when you read something that's raw. It's almost like, I think that millennials actually really like this probably more so than more old school, traditionally pubbed is so polished, right? And with the indie authorship, you can get those raw, rough books. Maybe it's more of a rough draft and it's published, but it's, it's closer to that raw voice. I actually like that. I like that voice because those books still have a beating heart. And I'd rather the beating heart than a pretty prose book that's empty and dead one thing i've noticed is that the more people study writing in kind of more of an academic sense whether that's at school or university or college or whatever the more they lose that voice because they're so busy trying to please their professors it does become almost too polished yeah well they end up emulating someone else that's i mean christine catherine rush Really like her blog. I actually support her on Patreon and you can go check out a lot of her free stuff on just her blog. But she, I mean, she is pretty flat out like developmental editors are a scam, which I don't hold that belief, but I get what she's saying because she's like, you need to write more like you 
And if you go to this fancy developmental editor that wants you to write more like them, even asking other authors for advice can be, um, can take you off your own path. But I'm excited about this because I'm 36 years old and I'll be writing for a long time for the rest of my life. It's not a career that I'm going to age out of. And I have years to walk down this path of writing more like myself, being more of like myself. And guess what? Some of those efforts are going to be very commercial because they'll just hit at the right time. It'll be like, a you know, sometimes it's just a zeitgeist. It's like people are just craving that sort of character like you just described Tate. And for whatever reason, it just hit at the right time. And then some of them will be less popular. And as I grow as an author with a huge back catalog, I'm, I'm lucky enough that, you know, I did fulfill that promise to my husband to help him out with the bills. Like we're there. And now, so that was why I was pushing my daughter on the swing and thinking, what, what do I want? <laughs> like, I feel like I've had the commercial success now. Have I hit number one and blah, blah, blah. Have I got my books optioned for television and film? No, not yet. Is that a goal that I want? And I think right now it's really the craft. Like, it, am I, am I sitting at the com- computer and having a blast and am I, getting into flow. That's actually what I want now. I love that because it's so simple, but so effective at the same time. Yeah. It's like getting back to the basis. It's like, which another, I was just thinking about this. I'm going to have a character say this, or it's like, I'm, I'm getting really into drinking water and breathing. <laughs> I have a life coach. And I was thinking about that because I had someone coaching me. who was like, let's talk about your water intake. And how you breathe. I was like, wow, we're back to like human 101. But it's amazing how many people take things like that for granted because I had a raging headache yesterday and I realized I hadn't drunk enough for like most of the weekend, probably long before that. So I was just drinking and drinking and drinking and then I feel better today. But also on top of that, I've noticed I don't breathe properly and then I wonder why I don't feel right and as an asthmatic it's even worse to not breathe properly I'm not breathing properly and this uh, it was a massage therapist she's like yep now do it again she's like okay your back should be moving I was like what and she's like yeah all these muscles that wrap around I'm like man but you know what I have learned about mastery you know we want to get so fancy we want the degree we want to go like higher and higher and higher and really it's about the fundamentals it's about the basics And, um, it's kind of annoying because your ego wants it to be about the fancy. And then I'm sitting here like, no, actually me working on my craft is me opening my computer and writing. That is the craft that I need to work on getting into flow, which is literally just open your computer, no distractions, put on the music you like and write and see if you can let it go and practice that like a muscle. And I'm getting back into that because after 2020, I was, um, my workflow was interrupted as it was for many people. And I do want to put this out there just in case somebody's struggling with writer's block and really beating themselves up about it. Cause I've been there. I'm kind of still there and I'm sort of getting out of it. Um, that can be a lot of it's just negative self-talk where you're beating yourself up. And then your brain doesn't want to sit down and write because all you're going to do is beat yourself up. So watch what you're saying to yourself. It's as simple as that. The other part of it was I was in pain. So if you have writer's block and you're beating yourself up about that, think about when you sit down to write, do your hips hurt? Because that was what what it was for me. Does your body physically hurt? Because your body's not going to want to sit and write 
if it means more pain. So go solve that pain. And I just want to say that because that was a big epiphany for me last year. I was like, I'm in pain constantly. I should fix this. So yeah, strength training, water breathing, strength training. Let's throw that out there. Yeah, that makes sense. I um, wrote some quite emotional stuff last month and then I had to take a break from writing because I was just so emotionally drained. At the same time as that, I was kind of almost reevaluating and had that moment of, is this what I want to keep doing? And I just needed that headspace to process. And if I had forced myself to keep going at that point, it would have been counterproductive. And sometimes you do just need to rest and take the pressure off yourself. Agree. I I don't think that, I think Becca Syme is starting to do this more with talking about burnout and talking about the taboo subjects like mental health, you know, daily spoons, what your capacity is naturally and how to fit in with that. Um, And I'm really glad that someone is talking about that, but I, I don't think we should even talk about that as a pathology. Like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. I don't want to write today. What if it's like something's right because you naturally want to take a break and you're allowing yourself to take a break. And that's part of your writing process. Every single book, I write as much as I can in the beginning and then 60, 80% in, I'm like, eh, and I freak out for a few days. Every single book, you think I'd be like, no, this is your process. And I back away and I come back and I write out a beat sheet and I reread what I've written and I clean it up. And then I'm like, I do this every time. And I skip to the end and I write the end because typically I have that in my head. And then I kind of, it all works out. I don't even know how it works out actually, because then I'm in it, right? And you're just doing it. But yeah, that natural freak out in the 60 to 80% mark of every single book. I'm talking about like 30,000 word book, which is really a novella, 80,000. It doesn't matter what length it's like there. And there's nothing wrong. That's actually just part of my process. Just like sleeping is part of my life. Nothing wrong there. Something would be wrong if I didn't sleep. And you probably find it harder to write if you weren't sleeping as well. Yeah, that's the other thing is like, do you have writer's block or do you have insomnia or a small pet that keeps you up at night? Just think about that, guys. Yeah, our, our dog um, has really bad allergies at the moment. It keeps waking me up at 4 a.m. scratching. Yeah, that can yeah. that can like affect your <laughs> mental health. It can. And I was so sleep deprived for about a fortnight and it wasn't just merely scratching. I just wasn't sleeping well. And actually what my boyfriend and I started doing is we would take Millie for a nighttime walk and it really helped me to switch off. My brain was like, okay, not work mode now. And I'd come home and I'd chill or I'd be tired enough to already go to bed. Probably not. I'd usually end up watching telly, but it just really helps my brain to switch off. And I wasn't doing enough physical activity. So it also helped kind of wear my body out a little bit. And because it was like nine, 10 o'clock at night, the town is just super atmospheric. And I felt like I was in my fantasy book, The Ghost Call, because that's where it's set. It and was then so you're, So that actually is writing. Yeah. <laughs> that counts I, as writing. I tried to take a walk. picture of one of the streets my character walks down, but I set off someone's dog barking as I was stood in like the perfect spot. <laughs> yep, that, that counts as writing too. It's like getting, <laughs> getting fined for trespassing. <laughs> but I wasn't on their drive. It was just Good. they've got a dog like ours, which is like if you're 100 yards around their house then the dog goes off kind of like a burglar alarm wonderful yeah one of those dogs <laughs> but it it was just so nice and so calm I think in like a 45 minute walk we saw maybe three people 
That is nice. This is not a village. This is like your standard town with like a hundred thousand people or something in it. Awesome. It was just so chill and slightly eerily quiet, but it gave my boyfriend and I a nice time to just talk about nothing in particular. And it wore Millie out. It wore me out. It helped my boyfriend switch off from work. So it kind of served all these different purposes. And then I would get home and go to bed. And in the morning, I would wake up and either edit or do some writing. And it was natural. And yeah, I just read a statistic that kids that are allowed more free time voluntarily do their homework. Really? Yeah. And kids that are a lot more free time voluntarily, like do more chores versus the kids that with more structured, like piano, now violin, now dance, now soccer or whatever in the, in the evenings. Um, I'm always looking for a reason to do less as a parent. So that was really fun. Uh, I think that 2020 obviously affected all of us. And, you know, even those of us who luckily did not get sick um, or, you know, were affected in that way, we had a shifting of our natural daily habits. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm in pain. Why? Because I was sitting on the couch with my kids more and I was sitting on the floor with them more doing crafts or whatever. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of us are now thinking through the change in our schedules. Um, if you were a writer who had a natural schedule and I have a friend who just quit her job. So then she's trying to figure out how to write differently because instead of a few minutes here and there at her job, which allowed her to, she figured out how to write whole books this way. She's an amazing writer. Um, Now she's home with tons of free time, but a toddler at home. It's a very different writing experience and you're, you know, you're building different habits. So again, going back to the basics is how you become a master and an expert. I think people definitely underestimate the power of those kind of foundations of anything though, but like their foundations for a reason, you don't have them, then the whole structure collapses. Yeah. There's a famed football coach who would be like, gentlemen, this is a football at the beginning of every season. I was going to throw that quote in and I was like, what's the Venn diagram of people who write and listen to this podcast and people who would know that football quote, but <laughs> I threw it in there. You can, you can cut it out if you want. <laughs> anything sport related goes over my head unless it's F1, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners might get it. I was brought up in a very unsporty household, which is probably why I don't exercise enough. Yeah, our kids are going to be in the chess club if they're in any clubs, which now I'm not putting them in any clubs because this article said I don't have to. <laughs> Speaking of foundations, then, what's one book that has changed your life? I think that the most inspiring books are actually the bad books because they teach you like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey is not well written. And, you know, it it's great because that's freaking Jane Austen who wrote that book. <laughs> I don't know. It was fun for me to read that and be like, oh, I can be a writer. This is this is awesome. So there's books that inspired me to write because they were excellent, like Terry Pratchett's books, that beautiful meld of satire, fantasy humor, just like Douglas Adams, you know, sci-fi and satire and humor. And they inspire you, but then to actually sit down and get going, it can take reading something that's either bad or I really like Kristen Ashley's indie published stuff because they're some of the first indie books that I read and really loved. And her voice is right, right front and center. And she wrote for a publisher later. And those books are very polished. They're really excellent. But man, something about the raw beating heart quality to her early indie published works 
that's where she found her readership. That's where she found lifelong, hardcore fans like me. And that's really inspiring because she talks about like first person, very stream of consciousness. The characters do what they do. And those early books, man, they just, they were kind of wonky, but they had that quality that made you want to keep reading and you really could connect to them. So yeah, those were very inspiring. And what got me to write I do want to throw this out. What got me writing after years of kind of giving up on myself and my dream was I went to a hypnotherapy session and I actually went to have like hypnotherapy to kind of release the brakes so that I could be very successful in this finance career. And what ended up happening was it released the brakes that I had like pulled up the emergency brake on my writing career and the the dream that I had to become a writer. And once the brakes are gone, you just go. You're just like, oh, why not? Oh, I could self-publish. Well, how do I do that? All right. Now I'm watching a tutorial and blog on Amazon KDP. And now I'm just on Katie. Now I have an account. Now I'm finding a cover. Now I'm uploading it. Oh my God, I'm a published author that quickly. And that was very beautiful. So that's not a book, but that if if hypnotherapy interests you, I think I'm getting back into it for writer's block stuff. And it's very, very useful to remove that negative voice in your head that says you can't do it. And that kind of block that you put up because we really just stop ourselves. And it goes back to the voice thing. What keeps us from just using our voice in our books? It's us. We're going, oh no, that's not literary enough. Oh no, that's not fancy enough. Oh no, I should be more erudite. And you should not, you should not be erudite. <laughs> Is that even how you pronounce it? I don't know. You should not have, you should, you should just be yourself, my God, and stop, stop putting all this false pretenses. And it's almost like you think that people want to see you in a wig and false eyelashes. And it's like, no, we just want to see your face. Your face is fine. That was super inspiring. I know I did a lot of work for my chronic pain and mental illnesses last year. And one of the things that really helped me was expressive writing, which helped me to find some of those breaks and realize what was holding me back and where some of those issues lay and how the triggers for some of the things I was dealing with, I had not even realized or comprehended but they were, there was a lot to unpack. Let's go with that. Yeah, that's a whole nother talk. I love it. And what's interesting is we can go to school and then almost as a backlash, we're like, no, 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 I don't want to write like that. And then we, then we go the other way and we're like overcorrecting, which apparently you can do with your body too. You can be like, oh no, I pronate my feet. So then you, then you try to correct that, but you overdo it and then you're supinating your feet. And anyway, that's, those are those are also words I've not ever used out loud. I'm not, not sure if I've <laughs> correctly, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a form of body work called Alexander technique. That's really just about look at your body in the mirror and let your body correct itself. You just observe. That's pretty cool. And that comes back to what we've been talking about with just find your voice, keep your voice and don't let it, any of those other things crowd, crowd into it. Wrapping up then, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your billionaire werewolves or any or Vikings or whatever of your books they want to read? Whatever about? they are. So um, my books are actually up wide now, which is a new venture for me since last year. I'm really excited about it. Um, and so Lisa Vino, just L-E-E and then S-A-V-I-N-O. And then I also have Millionaire Author Mastermind on Facebook and it's a smaller Facebook group that is still pretty awesome. And, and it was just me 
wanting to invite a lot of my friends, which were mostly erotica authors. So there's a lot of erotica authors in there uh, and dark author, dark romance authors. But it, it was a place for us to talk very honestly about wanting to make a lot of money from our books. And at, at the same time, you know, I'm still really obsessed with craft and writing awesome books, books of the heart. So it, it's, it has kind of a cool vibe. So you could go onto Facebook and find me there. And I had an email newsletter for authors, but I don't remember even how you can find it. But if you're in that group, I think that eventually there'll be a, probably a sign up link. I used to send up like author advice stuff and um, I haven't done that in a while, but I might get into that more in the coming years. I'm probably doing another um, course with Nick Eriks on marketing and marketing strategy for 2022. That will probably come out in December or so. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great, inspiring chat and it's been great fun. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. (laughs) Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, hit like and subscribe. It really helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what kind of content you want more of. And don't forget, you can support The Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favorite coffee a month. Join our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes, bonus content, and monthly writing catch-ups with me and Christina. And maybe writing sprints if that's something that enough people are interested in. I'm going to put the feelers out there. That's put weird alien imagery in my head now. Mm, sorry, not sorry. If you'd like to join our slightly less random Patreon, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. And don't forget to check out the free Facebook group we mentioned, which you can find at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. And that magic link will direct you back to Facebook because trying to type the whole thing into Facebook is a massive pain in the ass. We are in there every day talking all things writing, mindset, reading, and occasionally pets. So it'd be great to see you in there. See you next time. Keep writing. (laughs) 